Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. And anyway, this is kind of an idea I had um, with the question at hand at the start of the conference, one of the things that um, philosophers do is you ask them a question and they say, well, that's an interesting question, but what you really mean by that question is something completely different. And so now to begin my presentation with the wonderful line from Monty Python, and now for something completely different. So consider what I call the argument from moral experience. I have four premises that constitute this argument, and then they're on the handout. Premise one, moral facts are experiences being objective and non-natural. The best explanation of their being objective and non-natural moral facts is based on phenomenological theism. Phenomenological theism is the thesis that God is imminently revealed in moral action. Therefore, the experience of moral facts provides evidence for thinking theism true. I wanted to start with that because what I did was, is I took the traditional moral argument for God's existence. And I thought, well, that's an interesting argument. If we're going to a conference on this theme, that's going to be maybe what we're going to be referencing. It's a very common argument. And that argument uh, is, I call one prime, moral facts are objective and non-natural. The best explanation of their being objective and non-natural moral facts is theism. So three, therefore, the experience of moral facts provides evidence for thinking theism true. I thought about taking that argument and trying to think through the problem of my so-called addiction to phenomenology. I'm a phenomenologist. I think through problems as we experience them. So in the following lecture, I like to assess the argument from moral experience. My argument from moral experience is inspired by that rendition I just read you. Now the difference between these two arguments is based on shifting the inference for the existence of God to the experience of God. For the experience of God is imminent in moral action, and what we want from morality can only acquire a sense and meaning from looking at the structure of moral experience where God is felt. I will admit that part of this analysis is inspired by Shaler and Levinas, but my real ambition is to get at the heart of the arguments as to why we might think Shaler and Levinas correct in these matters. Let me speak to the organization of this essay. First, I will explain the grounds for holding each premise and why I find it far superior to the moral argument for God's existence. Next, I'll offer phenomenological reasons why the conclusion follows from the premises, and that might be the most contentious thing of all, to think that there's something called phenomenological evidence to deduce premises, but please bear with me. In the argument from moral experience, this will involve an in-depth analysis of premise two, which is doing most of the work for the aforementioned argument. Second, I'll explain the motivations for why I focused on the phenomenology of moral experience as a reason for concluding theism is true. Now, premise one could have been stated such as one prime, moral facts exist as objective and non-natural. The assertion of extant moral facts is harder to prove than the experience of moral facts. The hard moral realist asserts the existence of an independently true body of moral statements, which are true and treated very much the same way as one might treat the belief that cats are mammals. 
We treat the moral belief that people should be fair to each other as suggesting something true for all situations to which people would relate to each other. The reason why the hard moral realist finds moral claims convincing is that they can oblige us from the simple fact that they are true. Right? You often hear a hard moral realist say there are truth makers in the world. There's an independent ontology of things that makes them true, such as, I don't necessarily know, um, I don't think we're allowed, well, okay. But you know, you might say they're grounded in God, we can discover them as part of natural law theory, or you know, they're objectively true because they're commands from God. You might be a divine command theorist, right? But there's something external to moral propositions that makes them true, right? Now, one crime, however, proves too much. First, the hard moral realist is metaphysically extravagant. He wants objectivity so much that he treats moral claims like descriptive or scientific claims. However, the truth conditions for such objectivity distort how we experience values. First, we do not experience values as an object of knowledge. They are felt deeply in intentional feeling. Second, we do not assent to a proposition like a controlled scientific inquiry. Instead, values are felt in the exigent circumstances about the goods in question. Moreover, the last two experiential reasons are motivations for why someone might insist upon the truth of hard moral realism. But without a careful phenomenological analysis of experience, the hard moral realist often is self-serving in those features of experience he selects about experience that motivates endorsing his extravagant meta-ethical position. Let us look then at some features of moral experience more carefully. If both you and I share a similar feeling, we can intend the same value. Let us use the oft-repeated example that you and I stand some distance from a group of teenagers setting a cat on fire. This is a very common analytic example. Right? There is nothing physical in that situation to which we normally assign value. And yet we employ value talk about the situation. At this point, we are safe to assume that we experience the cat burning as unnecessary suffering. And this action bears the value cruelty beyond belief. If we ask the teenagers why they did it, we might try to find some abuse in their background or some underlying motivation for why they set the cat on fire. But looking for motivation of someone is different than the felt demand of value in that situation. There's a difference, right? We experience the wrongness of that suffering deeply. Well, unless you hate cats, right? But from the experience, we begin to see that we have some language to talk about how both you and I felt about that action. To see if we have the same moral hunches and reactions, we talk to each other, we talk to others that react predictably similar to the same situation. Setting cats on fire is felt as cruel. Note, felt as cruel. From this common co-feeling, about the situation, we can conclude that there's some reliable objectivity in how I and others feel, and that nothing physical in that situation could account for the feeling of cruelty manifest in our acts, right? In premise two, the phenomenology is the explanation. Usually, metaethical positions import the assumptions about reality as why we experience the world as we do, right? And Metaethics was inaugurated as a discipline in analytic philosophy largely to accommodate the search for what justified or what was the function of moral language, right? Which involved a whole set of questions about what actually existed. But phenomenological description reverses this priority and looks to describe an experience of an exemplar phenomenon before inferring ontological commitments. One might object that this makes phenomenology then self-serving for what it wants from ontology. However, I concede some of this without admitting the self-serving nature of phenomenological method. 
presupposing metaethical commitments about moral experience before looking to experience itself is worse than looking to experience as a way to solve philosophical problems. For the phenomenologist, taking experience for granted means removing philosophy from the concerns of those that live it. And in such distancing, metaphysics can be employed to assert categories about experience that are not found within experience at all, and such attempts could presuppose an ontology about particular values. One motivation shared amongst phenomenologists is the want for philosophy to concern itself with concrete matters of lived experience rather than proposing any conceptualization removed from experience. In moral experience, we experience values as being on the backs of goods, deeds, and persons. That's one or less one of my more favorite points uh, from one of my more favorite thinkers. We feel these values between us despite their lack of physical tangibility. We re-feel what someone else feels, and in that feeling, we are presented with that value's givenness. Intentional feeling is correlated to a specific value quality. Bliss fills our whole personality with the absolute value of the holy. Our feeling of health is connected to how our environment is given to us. Uh, so, you know, for instance, if you are in the forest and it's wilting and it's western Pennsylvania and you live two miles from a former steel mill, you see what they do to the landscape. The landscape is somehow given as suffering in some way. Uh, even to point that I'm from Newcastle and Youngstown, up where you might say the landscape are given and people often feel that way about their surroundings. So in the highest value of the holy, our capacity to feel alongside others is renewed in the highest possible way. We are instilled with a perspective completely outside of us that comes onto us in ritual and religious experience more generally. Thus, when premise two predicates objective and non-natural features of morality, these qualities are aspects of experiencing intentional feeling associated within religion. God is the source to which we aim, and in aiming to that which is completely other, we become oriented towards that which is pure difference in our very action. That would be a very Levinesian, but also I would think a very Schillerian claim. We can easily welcome both widow and orphan to be fed by having a renewed connection to Christ in the Eucharist. The singular unique otherness of the other slash person finds expression in both Levinas and Shaler. The person is given to us as a possibility with the imminence of the suffering other. Objective here means not objective knowledge. It means intersubjective and is due to our capacity to re-feel what others feel that binds us to others and the emanating presence where God is felt. Before God, we are all unique. That's what being created in the image of God means. In relation to him, I am Ed, a PhD soon to be graduate from SIU, born in New Jersey and raised in Western Pennsylvania. My wife is Ashley, born in Youngstown, Ohio, and thankfully a Steelers fan. There is nobody like her in, there's nobody like her or me in existence. That's the point, right? The objective, the objectivity takes on a new sense within phenomenology. The objectivity in other moral philosophies amounts to a substitutable other. Before Kantianism, we are all agents. Either you or I ought to do the same thing in relation to the categorical imperative. Both the non-formal ethics of Levinas and Shaler attempt to supplant this modern tendency of equalizing differences between people and insist upon the radical uniqueness of the other person. Ashley's not valuable due to species membership, the fact that she is a rational agent or any other criterion beyond herself and her uniqueness, nor I or you. 
Instead, Ashley is absolutely unique, and it follows from her radical uniqueness objectively that she is absolutely valuable. In fact, the possibility to love another rests on accepting the singular uniqueness of an other person. Second, non-natural follows on the heel of the single uniqueness of persons. On this point, phenomenological evidence is rather convincing, or at least I find it convincing. The fact that a person can never be objectified or reduced to another category is what it means to be a person. Instead, persons are of spirit. Now that might be a little bit confusing, but this is not a metaphysical term for, Sh for Shaler as much as it is a term to signify the radical uniqueness of the person. We cannot be adequately categorized since we are beyond categorization and simultaneously we are the source of that categorization. Persons are the source of meaning in the world and consequently they cannot be derived from that which they engender. Persons are not reducible to anything in the world. If intentional feeling precedes all pre-volitional and pre-cognitive experience, then it is only from the shared intentional capacity of persons that is responsible for why experience objects in life have meaning and therefore value. Shaler's later metaphysics aims to articulate a view beyond the phenomenological, but preserving the insight of the person's non-objectifiable spirit at the same time how persons and God participate in being together. According to Shaler, the person encounters a world in its vital urge. You could call it drang or impulsion, but I translate it here as vital urge. The vital urge reaches outwards towards a goal in the world, and the world is given to us in resistance. The vital urge is rarely satisfied, and if it attains its goal, the world and the world conforms in some way to us, the world will comply ever so briefly. Then life will be given to us in this worldly resistance once more, and we will not be sated. Within this movement, the coming to be feltness of the resisting world is called value. In this way, values are at the spiritual act center of the person, reaching out and filling the content of our experience of actions, things, and others. When we relate to another, when we help another person, they, like us, encounter a life in which our drives, energy, and desire find resistance in the world around us. All reality is given the resistance, but capable of ever higher spiritualization. While spirit is initially impotent to physically affect the world, we can experience a calling within our vital urges and learn to suspend their effect on us. Thus, by suspending our attention to the vital urges movement to a resisting world and thereby suffering, human beings can apprehend a higher value than their simple vital urges. This happens when we act on love, and within acting in love, God stands between us and others, or what is meant in premise three. We can aspire to the level of spiritual feeling and values of holiness. Thus again, the point of religion is to open ourselves up towards the inherent spiritualization in human life and realize it in all we do. The point of phenomenological theism is not to replace the sense of God has in his own right, instead accepting to prime the best explanation of there being objective and non-natural moral facts as theism commits one to adopt the same phenomenological reasons inherent in the Shalarian commitments I have explained here. Typically, an objective value is one that can be demonstrated publicly according to norms and justifications. There are many possible ways we might do this. We might show that the consequences in one outcome maximize better than another outcome. We might show that one course of action is more rational than another. However, the point matters not how we justify a course of action. That's the wrong place, the wrong place for ethics. Instead, these approaches presuppose the very phenomenology of experience underlying my motivation for emphasizing the phenomenological insight over to prime. The utilitarian assumes value is already knowable. 
and that there is something like an impartial perspective to which various outcomes can be assessed. The impartial standpoint in this secularly committed approach relies upon an experience of thinking objectivity and non-naturalism true. Values stand between people with respect to feeling. They are irreducibly part of another's experience, and yet we act upon them because in participating in value, the manifest benefit grows out of the presence of that action. More secular theories might call this a value uh, elevation of goodness in the world acts of beneficence. In such a way, the intersubjectivity of what these people take to be objective and valuable is wholly realized in the action between them, and what becomes realized is a commitment to love the other. This love manifests insofar as the utilitarian is more sophisticated in what she seeks to maximize beyond mere hedonic calculation. But let's leave this alone for now. As long as moral philosophy in question seeks to realize value, values through action, there is something like a growth, a becoming, a presence of beneficence underlying the affection such action brings. This is the experience in question that is shared between secular and sacred approaches to values. The growth of the becoming of love suspends the descending effect drives have upon us, whereas love participates in the intersubjective spirit of persons. For Shaler, persons can only be those that can suspend the effects of drives upon us and reflectively bring into awareness the act of suspending drives. Thus, persons and God are capable of this. But when love takes on the highest value of the holy, Individuals become given as absolutely other. There is no higher value than the absolute value of the holy. In this way, the intersubjective constitution of community can be based upon a commitment to the holy in the imminence of our firsthand experience of others. In our case, this commitment is the directness of my intentional act, love. This commitment is the directedness of my intentional act, loves the other person as they are without imposing upon them any objectification. Hence, objectification cannot be a source of making the other a victim or reason for justifying abuse. Since spirit is pure non-objectifiability, I can only leave the other be as a unique other before God. In this way, we can see the role of premise three. The imminence of the singular otherness comes by encountering them as each person is singular and unique. In the 20th century, the massive abuses of genocide arise out of the tendency for governments and people to judge others through objectified categories. And this is basically why you would always, you'll always hear Levinas uh, invoked against a sense of metaphysics, or at least a metaphysics or what you call a logic of the same. Uh, that just, is, in Shaler, it'll be objectification. The imminence of the singular otherness comes by encountering them as each person is singularly unique. Uh, a Jew can be less than human, so can blacks in the American South. The point is rather striking, right? Law of German blood and honor, 1933, you know what a Jew is, you can, you dehumanize them. You make them the same. Same thing, you make all African Americans three-fifths a person. They occupy a metaphysical category and you can exploit them. They're not persons. Instead, through God, we start the recognition of the singular uniqueness and preserve the commitment to the non-objectifiability of human beings first and foremost before all other commitments in philosophy. 
The prohibition of objectification delimits the possibility of a metaphysics of human beings at all. You can have a metaphysics of persons, right? But insofar as the person is a uh, conception of human life purged of the natural attitude, only phenomenological conception could get you that. Finally, the experience of moral facts, in quote, establishes a deduced relation to thinking theism true. I am suspicious of metaphysics. Like Levinas, I want to supplant the tendency of Western thinking to avoid the logic of the same, or what Shaler repeatedly calls objectification, and maybe in a certain reading what Heidegger called a metaphysics of presence, although that might be debatable. The practical consequences of the 20th century's abuses have all subordinated radical otherness of the person to the same category that dehumanizes. In fact, we might read this subordination of the person to categories of metaphysical speculation in the tendency of modernity to depersonalize the person. And that would be a very Catholic reading, maybe, of modern philosophy as depersonalizing the person. Maybe. Again, another contentious point, which we may or may not discuss. Instead, the first philosophy is not metaphysics, but the ontology of the person. There is only one being that is wholly other than I can. I can represent, represent him and it, and this is God. As John Valjean sings towards the end of Les Miserables, to love the other person is to see the face of God. In Schillerian speak, this realization is the recognized givenness of the person within the experience of their very uniqueness, what he will call spirit. Of course, I broaden this insight and claim that the experience of moral facts confirms thinking theism true. A moral fact could be the recognition of a proposition that expresses that uh, what I owe others, such as uh, I owe others charity when I can manage it at no cost to myself. Moral facts are propositionalized, positive and negative expressions of what I owe others. In our moral imagination, we often imagine what it might mean to fulfill some mysterious action, and sometimes we want to universalize all others like the imagined other and the imagined action as a basis for how others would act given the same set of conditions. Yet such an approach is dedicated to the objectification if the intention may have been seeking out only what I ought to do in that situation. I do not regard the others as anything other than those that, again, can be substituted for another. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.